Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Transform TV podcast series. I'm really excited about our next guest because it's going to be a fascinating conversation that's going to be relevant to absolutely everyone. So let me let me get started and introduce you to someone that you all definitely do know, I'm sure, because your name precedes you. Uh, professor Yossi Sheffi, who is Professor of Engineering Systems and Director of MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Maria. Nice to be with you. So you are, you know, you know a lot about supply chain. Let's start there. But more <laughs> importantly, you've written a lot of successful books. I'm very interested specifically in this new book that you've just written. Uh, you've, it's, why don't you tell us a little bit about this book? You've just published it last month. Yes, it just published it last month. So I'm every four or five years, I come up with a new book. I always work, work on a new book. And I was about a year and a half into a book on uh, innovations in, uh, in logistics and supply chain management, looking at history, looking, uh, looking forward. And in March, kind of start looking forward and realize I'm living to the biggest change in supply chain in my lifetime. So I stopped this process. Uh, usually I work with a group of 25, 30 people, a lot of researchers and postdocs and students. <clears throat> and I just, uh, so I stayed with two people. And since the end of March until the uh, beginning of September or mid-September, I kind of slept four hours at night and just worked throughout. And there's no, no weekend, no, not my wife was very helpful in this, but that's about it. So um, I also, I realized that an industry that I never gave much thought about, the book publishing industry, is exactly where the travel, in, the travel agent industry was before Expedia. Because okay. I was talking to some, several publishers, they say, yeah, give us the manuscript, takes a year to get the book out. And I said, what? <laughs> I mean, said, what the world but, moves but, a lot faster than that. The world moves yeah. a lot faster. We have a fast process, they say, take 10 months. And I said, guys, Amazon takes 48 hours from the time we give them, you are dead. Who will, I mean, it, it, it will be a slow death, but yeah. how can you do it? So this is the first time that I became my own publisher and just right. published a book on, uh, on Amazon. And uh, it's so far selling well, so. Well, well, that's well, that's great. I mean, you know, not to you've you've got quite a lot of people that are giving it great reviews. I know Professor Hal Lee of Stanford Business School has described the book as essential reading for any executive. Uh, you know, I've read it as well, and I think that what you just said about how this supply chain is undergoing the biggest change of your lifetime, I think you're absolutely right. And so, the book talks about the the new abnormal. So why don't you tell us what, what motivated you? Besides the fact, what were you seeing that motivated you to just bypass all norms and write this book so quickly? Well, first of all, I was by and large actually impressed by how quickly companies moved, how quickly companies adjusted, how they were able to um, you know, bypass existing bureaucratic hurdles and uh, change when, when we're talking about the Ford, the GM, Flex making ventilators or uh, you know, New Balance or many other companies making masks and PPE, how quickly they're able to change. How quickly other businesses, say in the food business, were able to withstand an unbelievable, not only half the food that usually go to restaurants and uh, um, universities, uh, industrial parks, these are all closed. 
and this is food that goes in large quantities, not mm. in supermarket uh, size packages. And the food that goes to supermarket also changed. People bought food that lasts long on the shelf, not so much uh, fresh produce. And yet, despite all the, yes, you didn't have sometimes the cut of meat that you like or the flavor, flavor of granola bar that you like, but supermarkets were full. Of course, we saw all the pictures that are usually taken at night of empty shelf. And I was telling my you know, journalist friend, come, go to the same supermarket in the morning, you see full shelf because they will not realize how supply chain, how uh, retail fulfillment works, that it, it done, it's done overnight. So all these changes and, and the, the quick adjustments uh, of many, many companies was actually, to me, it was impressive despite all the alarming headlines in <laughs> Uh, in the media, yeah. I think it was to use a quote from one of the greatest men ever lived. It was their finest hour. So, <laughs> well, I think I think after the initial shock and panic, right? Uh, there were several people that emerged, or several companies that emerged more um, resilient. I mean, you talk about sort of making lemons out of lemonade. Uh, those types of companies really worked worked out well, didn't it? Worked out well for them. It worked out well for them. It worked out well for the nation. It worked out well for, for you know, um, for consumers. Companies adjusted very, very fast. So it's, you know, good company. But look, some companies fell by the wayside. I know. Yeah. Give you one example. Domino, that, you know, their pizza had developed an app. It's just, a, it's relatively simple. It's not, it's existing technology. That you order it, and it's nice, nice user interface. You come next to the store, the store sees you because you have GPS on, on your phone. Mm -hmm. Somebody comes out, puts puts the pizza, the pizza in your trunk. Several of the competitors went out of business. Domino was up 16% by the by, by uh, Q2 last year. So companies who are more prepared, acted fast, have the right agility and, and, and flexibility culture were able to perform much better. Even big company, Unilever, did okay because they started making sanitizers instead of all this, uh, many other products. Korean Air, and most airlines are basically out of business. Yeah. Korean Air was profitable. Why? Because they very quickly moved to become a cargo airline rather than think about, I talked to many of the, and I, I talked to many, Airline executives, and they said that they, they were hesitating because they didn't know how long it would last. It takes a lot of money to take the seats out to really become a cargo airline. Korean just moved and take out the profit. Wait, can I hold on to something that you just said right there about the flexibility culture? What What are the some of the key, I don't know, attributes of companies that emerged well or have been emerging well? What makes them? What sets them apart? Okay, first of all, most of these companies never have a plan. They have multiple plans. Yeah. So a company that say over the next quarter, two quarters, year, this is our, our production schedule. But we'll also have see what happened, what do we do if we have you know high, you know, two standard deviation high or two standard deviation low from this. But it's not just the production. Then they do the entire planning. 
they do the financial plan because they know if, if it's high, they have to pay overtime. If it's low, they have to give discounts. So they need a financial plan, a marketing plan. So the whole organization needs to socialize itself to the fact that the, the future is not deterministic. Mm -hmm. so, so they are always looking for signposts that we are moving here, we are moving, uh, uh, moving there. Now, I must admit that uh, COVID-19 was such a black swan yeah uh, that they, but but a lot of the companies that i described in the book are global companies and they saw what's going on in china and they yeah. started making preparation in the us because they said oh okay this may or may not happen at the time they did they were not sure it will hit the united states that badly but the chinese were so the processes that they implemented around wuhan around other uh, other provinces in china they had to think about it. They had to implement. So they're much ready, much more ready to do it in the uh, in the United States. But you just pay attention. Basically. You talk about flexible thinking too. Like you, you said something earlier about a flexible culture. Is that something? You know, yes. are there are there companies that perhaps are still a little bit too rigid, not willing to you know make sanitizer when they when they manufacture something else? Was that an, a problem for them? Is that going to be a long term problem for them? The answer is. Yes, in some sense, it, it's a uh, companies who are still, um, you know, militaristic in their thinking. Companies who do not. So one of the things that they make flexible companies be flexible is allowing decision to be made close to the action. Mm -hmm. Give you a specific example, you know, Toyota production system. Every every worker on the line can stop the line if they see a problem. Aircraft carrier, U.S. aircraft carrier, working the same way. Every sailor on the deck, 19 years old, can stop flight operation, which is the reason for being for the whole carrier task force, if they see some some problem. They don't have to go up the chain and get the information. There's no time for this. So, yeah. companies who are one of the one of these allow people close to the action to make decisions. Um, you know, Zara uh, is known for this. That the people who are designers have the right when, when they see a trend to redesign something, send it to manufacturing, send it to the store without a lot of approval processes. Let me let me add one thing about COVID and the long term, because it's tied to this point: the long term influence, the long term impact of COVID. Co those companies that were able to um, adopt technology quickly, move to other other areas, uh, eke out some profit in some related areas of, of, of the operation, those companies did fast without much bureaucracy. Once you do it, it's very hard to go back. And it's incumbent on the leadership not to go back, but to see what, why were we able to work so fast? What is this that, uh, that helped us do it? And then keep it as a competitive advantage, being able to move fast, being able to respond to the market. We are not going to more, to less volatile world. The world will continue to be volatile. Gosh, we now have so many other issues. But, but <laughs> even when I we get out of this. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. Because I, th I think that there, are, you correct me if I'm wrong. I think I feel like there were companies that, 
fall into one of three categories, right? There were the companies that were diluted into, this is going to go away. We're going to, we're not going to change anything. We're going to continue as is. No, we're not going to, for example, we won't do e-commerce. I can think of here in the UK, an example of a company that just went, nope, we're not going to do e-commerce. It's bad for us. We're going to just shut it. We're just going to write it out. Fingers crossed. Then there are companies that are doing halfway house. In other words, for now, we're going to adjust until normality returns. And then there are those companies that said, screw normal. This is new normal. We're now operating this way. Is that kind of what your book is saying? Is that, do you find that that's, that's the only, same thing? It's not just e-commerce. There's a lot of other adjustments. Let me give you an example, Ikea. You can mm -hmm. now look online at Ikea, choose a piece of furniture, and then they have augmented reality app that you can put the piece of furniture in your room and see what's going to look like. Yeah. You know, there are companies, there's a a company in, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, that sells, a, uh, no, forget even the name, Sephora, a company, mm -hmm. you know, cosmetics. Yeah. Women used to go to the store, there's a big Sephora next to us, used to go to the store, you see all these customer service representatives helping them put the makeup on. They now do it online. And you talk yeah. directly to a customer service representative online. So it's not only e-commerce, it's the contact with the customer that they were able to move online. It's other, um, but that's what that's what I mean. I think what were there those types of companies that were so so determined to continue with normality, right? That they failed to adjust. The companies that are still hoping for normality, and the companies that believe what you just said, which is we are not going back to a world with with just without disruption, you know. And not only this, some of the companies in the first group that you say, companies who did not adjust. In many cases, are companies that had business problems before. If if you look if you look at the um, you know the U.S. you know we look at company the companies that, that are in malls you know the mall what they call the big mall anchor companies um, they were going down before they were before COVID. They were so maybe, so maybe this, exp this exposed it a lot more then, didn't it? It exposed it and it accelerated and many, many of these, uh, you know, these companies, you know, left the market. So it's... Uh, it's uh, tough. It's tough for them. So, 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 so yeah. let, let me ask you then, okay, let's go back to supply chain and supply chain leaders. You talked about how this has been unprecedented change, the biggest change in your lifetime in supply chain. Those are bold words. It's a very, very big, bold statement. Um, you know, what, what do you think, you talked about the future a little bit, but let's go to it. What does this mean for supply chain moving forward? Okay, some good stuff and some bad stuff. <laughs> okay. Moving forward, people will, adopt a lot more technology, which is good. Adopt yeah. a lot more, you know, the visibility app, a lot more automation using drone, using, uh, it, it, uh, you know, accelerated the development of a lot of uh, uh, supply chain related technology. And the, so that's good. Uh, it also tests relationship between uh, suppliers and, and customer in the B2B world, because, uh, in a crisis, you find out who your friends are. Yeah. So it's uh, you find out who you can trust, who who is really will uh, respect long-term relationship and continue supply to you, and who will not. And these have long-term, you know, 
long-term effects. So in some sense, it will strengthen relationship in, in supply chain because th those that work, those that didn't will, will be served. Um, add to it a lot, a lot more, uh, you know, infusion of technology. On the bad side, I always thought that uh, sustainability is a supply chain issue because you can always outsource your, your pollution. So <laughs> you have to look at the entire supply chain. Otherwise, yeah. it's a meaningless statement that the company reduces its carbon footprint when now the carbon footprint is in China. That, that doesn't count. So um, I'm afraid that the, despite all the happy talk, sustainability is now falling behind. Companies still worried always about revenue and cost. And now they're worrying more and have pressure more to worry about resilience and risk management. So, so they'll do so at the expense of sustainability, you think? It, it just, it, it moves lower. There are a lot of other reasons where I'm worried about sustainability going forward. It's a, you know, customers are, consumers are in poorer shape and are less willing to, even before consumers were just, you know, telling pollsters that they care and really didn't. But, but the, uh, the fact that they are even less, able to, not only willing, but able to pay for it or reduce their standard of living even, even further in, in a recession. Uh, yes. it's, it's a problem. And because of this, if the consumers don't want to do it, companies cannot invest and government, this, again, despite all the happy talk, governments cannot do much for several reasons. A, you know, Paris was burning when it tried to do carbon footprint, a, a carbon tax. Um, but beyond this, government don't have the money. Yeah, especially now. So, now we spend so much on helping the economy and investing in vaccines and investing in. Where is the money going to come from to start investing in the Green New Deal? So I, I, I'm worried about this because there's another reason to worry about it because many countries, including the EU, by the way, were having rules that us first in terms of the, of the vaccine. Well, this will leave, this will not gonna go away. Other countries will remember this. And we are going to, if we talk about global warming, we need global action. We need everybody, everybody to be on board. There was just an article today in the Wall Street Journal about China's addiction to coal. They're still building coal plants like there's no tomorrow. So I love the Chinese. They talk a good game and then they do whatever they want. So it's a, <laughs> it is something that, this so there's going to be good news and there's going to be bad news for supply chain. Yes. Um, let's talk about the fundamental traits of a supply chain leader. We you know we, I always always believe that supply chain leaders are good at crisis, right? And this is definitely crisis management at its best. Uh, you know, so so how are we doing with crisis management, and what can supply chain leaders and companies do to prepare for future crises? You're talking about. You know, we're not going to the, the way back to normal. We're going back to a world of volatility. Yeah. Um, companies that were ready. First of all, let me just say that leadership is something for the most part that is tested in a crisis because for most large companies, they're working on autopilot by and large and moving very slowly. And it doesn't matter despite all the huge salaries of CEO, you can replace one with another. And for the most part, nothing changes, unless there's a crisis. I mean, and the company is in crisis and leaders 
do count. Uh, but there, there are some steps for a general preparation that any company, the company did and, and should do. So for example, they put together emergency management center. That's a hub of information decision-making. They worry about communicating obsessively to you know, employees, to the, to the community, to Wall Street, to customers, to, uh, to suppliers. They're making sure that the decision-making and protocols are laid out so they know what's going on. So uh, there's no confusion. They review suppliers who just to make sure they're still providing what they should be supplied. They review, in many cases, they don't have enough parts, for example, to build all product or all product to serve all customers. How do you prioritize? In my book, I describe all these things, how to do, how to do all these things, how to get to this, to provide framework for, for thinking about it. Um, companies are worried about, uh, you know, cash is king now, we're going to another recession. Talk about how to make sure that your suppliers, people lengthen terms of payment to supplier, how to make sure that you don't endanger suppliers. Company did one more thing, which they do in every recession, but more in this one. They reduce the number of stock keeping units. So the number of the variation of products. So for example, General Meal reduced the number of progressive soup. If you remember the United States, progressive soup is big yeah. from 90 variety to 50 variety. Why? Because at the beginning, during the height of the pandemic, they tried to make sure the supermarket shelves are full with those fast sellers, with the good sellers. They also realized it actually reduces the cost because there are less changeovers in manufacturing. Right. So, so a lot of companies are doing it. And good companies, of course, using the opportunity to plan for recovery. So they are actually looking at strategy, looking at which customers they want to sell, which market segments they want to be, which sales channels they want to be, which suppliers are there for the long term, and which employees are there with them for the long term. So uh, I know quite a few companies are going through and the exercise right now because it kind of gets everybody more um, sharper view of, of who is with us and who is not and, and how what do we do for the long term. Do you know, we, I've interviewed quite a lot of people and we talked about the opportunities that this crisis uh, brings out in supply chain leaders, right? Obviously not to downplay the severity of the situation, but the opportunities to perhaps create a more resilient business model, uh, a model that is um, not so reliant on financial metrics, you know, something that is more customer-centric and more sustainable business model. Um, the difference, though, is that unlike any other crisis that we've ever had, we don't know when this one will end. You know, we've had, <laughs> right, if, if at all, if at all. So we've had earthquakes, we've had um, explosions, terrorist actions, et cetera, and, and, and there seems to be like a finite time period for those okay now we're in the post earthquake you know time okay we go back to normal that's what tends to happen you know the, the you know the ash cloud volcano the earthquake in japan and so there's crisis and we work through crisis and then we just seem to go back to normal is this the new abnormal this this period of uncertainty that's that's what i was talking about but let me i i think yes this will be an inflection point in some sense 10 20 years from now will divide the 21st century to AC and DC, you know, before mm -hmm. COVID and after COVID. Yes. Um, and to me, it's an inflection. I just think about, I'll give you some other historical inflection point. The Protestant Reformation, the kind of yeah. 
got the, the decline of the Catholic Church or the Gutenberg press that got people to think for their own, or the American Revolution that started the idea of democracy and freedom, or the Great Depression with the New Deal and everything that worked afterwards, World War II that started all the you know, multinational organizations, the UN, the IMF, NATO, the, you know, all of this. I think 2020 will be a year like this in us because I don't think we'll fully recover from this, in recover in, in, uh, in quotation mark. We'll see, it's, uh, you know, hard to tell. But this, to, to me, it looks like an inflection point on par with those that I, uh, that I mentioned. Big one, we may come out, there's, you know, fear and hope. Hope that the, it was such a big shock that the world will realize that we have to work together that, and tackle things like global warming and inequality and, and, and lots of other issues that the world, the world is facing. And there are some, I should say, green shoots here, here yes. and there. Yeah, yeah. The, the green shoots, for example, are the amazing collaboration in the science world. You know, the genome of, the, of COVID was replicated over a thousand times, given to anybody for free. I, people, a lot of people work together, despite countries not working together, the scientists under them did work together. So, and I hope it, some other thing is why I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful for, and maybe we're going off topic, but uh, we spend so much money on COVID that we now see that we can fight with, there is a lot of money to spend when they, you know, when, when we, we all pull together. The, when the, when danger is, the danger is here. And anybody who doesn't see the danger of global warming now is a Trump supporter, basically. <laughs> Come back to that. <laughs> I, I, think, I think, you know what, let, let me bring it back to sure, the sure, sure. collaboration. No, 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 let me bring it back. To, so you bring a valid point. You're absolutely right. You know, it's if I think what you just said is spot on. Uh, the fact that we can come together as organizations that we can build resilience, that we can work with, you know, with with mortal enemy co countries and companies, and st to actually create the kind of um, solutions is, is is probably spells a new type of w way of working. But I want I want to bring it back to your book and the new abnormal and the kind of things that supply chain leaders can do to to prepare to navigate this this uncertainty. Right? Does it take a different type of leader? Does it take a different type of mindset shift? Uh, does it take a different type of team? Yeah, first of all, mostly to me, it takes a different type of board of directors. We have some of the problems that I see in, in good companies is board of director have very few people who are technology savvy and mm -hmm. very few people who understand what can and cannot be done. So uh, clearly the board of you know, Apple and Google, that, that's not the example that I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm talking about traditional companies that still full of people in finance and in marketing and, and in legal rather than people with the tech. So they, the decision sometimes or the, the push on the CEO and the management team is why aren't you doing blockchain? Because the Wall Street Journal wrote on, on, 
on blockchain, rather than thinking this is really technology applied to us, not applied to us. What? Uh, so it, it reminds me years ago when the board was saying, why aren't you in China? I mean, everybody's going to China, you should go to China. But not doing real analysis unless, and, and CEOs were, you know, the job depend on it. So they went to China, whether it made sense or not. So I would say, first of all, it's, it's the composition of the board. Right. And uh, strong CEOs can, of course, contribute to the, to the, uh, uh, to the composition uh, of the board. But number one, tech savvy. Number two, um, open to the to society, understanding where society where society is going. Unfortunately, politically savvy. I would say one more thing that uh, that discussion with uh, what's his name the the, the, uh, the world the New York Times journalist uh, Friedman Tom Friedman. He's, he's, he's looking for companies to take the lead in Washington because he said that there's nobody else. So yeah. he hopes that companies can take the lead. But I, I must admit, it's, it's hard to see at this point. But I'm, I'm hopeful. There are yeah. some, some of the CEOs are very thoughtful people. And maybe they can see beyond you know, Wall Street and the, the, next, the next quarter. Uh, because we depend on it, so we better do something, get together. So I'm looking at the, the leaders who are successful leaders who instill, as I say, the right culture, move fast, listen to the community, mostly not hierarchical organization, but a relatively flat organization that allow, allow people, allow exchange of opinions. Because well, going back to what you said at the beginning, flexible thinking. Which means, unlike current U.S. universities, unfortunately, they do not allow flexible thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's just a side comment. <laughs> but uh, I, I, th I think I companies think, you companies know, are actually better than universities. Absolutely. Well, they well, the, the the I mean, if you think about the companies, you said something really interesting, which is a lot of these companies were in trouble before COVID. Maybe they didn't yes. know it. Maybe they didn't. You know, maybe it wasn't tremendously palpable, but they were in trouble. And COVID all of a sudden just, you know, exposed all the cracks, exposed all the cracks across their businesses, their business models, across the supply chains, across all of these things. Um, and um, I think if you if I think back to startups, you know, remember when startups were just starting to come into fashion? You know, everybody working at a startup was really cool and working with startups was really cool. And and then all of a sudden you started to see startups that were knocking on the doors of a lot of big established businesses and had them shaking. Uh, what do they have in common? The startups are agile and flexible and resilient, aren't they? So do you think that kind of startup thinking, mindset, collaboration, working ethos is something that it, most companies should follow or try to? The answer is absolutely yes. And companies do. There are companies specifically with Google or 3M that allow engineers to put 20, 30% of their time on new stuff and allow, um, allow this, uh, this to develop. In fact, one of my worries is that the big companies, that, especially in tech, are getting so big and so powerful that they squash all the competitors. They yeah. simply, uh, or, or buy them out. And mm -hmm. the, 
It's really interesting because unlike the European competition or the US um, Justice Department actually does not have the tool to fight really? even because they're gonna lose to Google. And I'll tell you why. Because the, the, uh, the, in the US law, in order to bring Google down with anybody else now, you have to prove that it harms consumers. And Google will say, we give it for free. What are you talking about? You cannot harm consumers. The fact that they collect all this data, the fact that they buy every competitor and long term, they actually hamper innovation is not part of the law. You cannot, you cannot get them based on this because they say, how can we harm consumer? We gave our product for free. So it's well, that's a, probably another a, a prime example of another thing that has moved faster, you know, than uh, what the people that wrote the laws envisioned, you know. But even the law, the law cannot again. Just to get really, you know, desperate, you have to look at the hearing that Congress and the Senate, the Senate held with some of the CEO of, of the company. Oh and, yeah, and they had no. This, this lawmaker had no clue how tech works. No clue. They asked, no, that was it. Was quite funny, wasn't it? To, to watch some of that stuff. Yeah. How do you make money if you give your product for free? What did you ever do it on Facebook? Did you see the advertisement on mm. Facebook? What are you? They just do not understand how the world works today. And these yeah. are the people who make the laws. So it's uh, there's a huge um, disconnect between you know how fast the laws can move and how fast technology uh, technology moves and I, even the tools that the, actually the european have uh, somewhat stronger anti-competitive yeah. laws than the united states they, and, and they and they will they will see that here and they, so, and, so, and they will they, they, they yeah. do put a lot of they will see they, these companies they certainly will so so let me let me um because we've only got time for a couple more things i want to go back to the to your book because uh, it's 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 just so pertinent to what is going on right now. Um, you know, what advice can supply chain leaders find in your book? In my book, I try to paint a picture of what the world is going to be like in the next few years. So I try to paint a picture of, uh, but it's supply chain live in, in in the world. So I talk a lot about trade and trade regulations. I talk a lot about the, um, you know, uh, education. I talk a lot about the, as I said, uh, mentioned before, sustainability. I talk, a lot of issues that are not directly related to supply chain, but supply chain live in the world that is created by government. I talk a lot about the, the new role of government in the, uh, um, in the next few years, because government did so much that the role grows. Even in the United States, you know, Clinton said it's the end of big government. It's not. Government just keeps growing. And every time we have a new program, and this is, will be a lot of social program now, they stay. You cannot take them away. So government keeps, uh, keeps going. People expect more from, uh, uh, from government. So it means that they, for, supply, for, for supply chain leaders, since government writes the rule book, on trade, for example, on tariffs, on, uh, on competition. And, uh, government footprint is gonna be heavier and companies will have to pay a lot more uh, a lot more attention. So anyway, I try to paint a yarn of what the world is gonna look like or in, in several, uh, several areas. And in this, 
what supply chains can and cannot do. But a lot of it, of course, depends on how government will do it. Let me finish with one thing. Yesterday, I had an article in the Wall Street Journal when I talk about the fact that uh, there's not much difference. In there's only one thing that both Democrats and Republicans agree on. They hate China. So <laughs> the anti-China sentiment is uniform. Yeah. And I said the Chinese probably have to root for Trump because they made, you know, they made meat sausage out of it. They know how to deal with Trump. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> all the dealing, they came out ahead. Biden may present a lot, a very different, uh, and he may get the European, Japan, some other, as you can, all together, that will be pressure on China to change. So again, in this framework, supply chain will work differently, but supply chain virtually are staying similar. I, I, okay. you know, virtually the connection are, are staying. The people are not gonna leave China right away, despite all the, uh, all the administration pronouncement. They're not coming back to the US. Those few that are leaving the garment manufacturing and others because the cost in China is high going to Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. They're not going to the United States or even to Mexico. So, and, and sophisticated manufacturing is not leaving China. There's too many, the ecosystem there is too good. And Chinese market is too large. Most people are not leaving. So that's gonna play a big part still in, in, in the supply chains of the future. Oh so. yes, it's gonna still play a very big part in the, uh, in the supply chain. There's no easy replacement for China. It takes years, if not decades, and billions of dollars to extricate. Now, let me just finish by saying that we can do it on specific issue. We can, we can do it on uh, PPEs. We can do it on some intermediate uh, uh, material that goes into all kinds of, of uh, pharmaceutical. We can do it on rare earth minerals. On specific stuff that we, the dependence on China may be critical, Companies can invest, and in, in, in the French government already announced they are, you know, starting to invest in, uh, you know, making intermediate materials mm -hmm. that go into, uh, into pharmaceutical. So yes, but by and large, that's a small part of the, of the economy. By and large, nobody's leaving China. No. But well, I think that's a that's a very important point to make, given the impact that it has across so many supply chains, doesn't it? You know, given and across many many companies. Um, Professor Yossi Sheffi, thank you so much for joining us on Transform TV. Thank you so much for being here uh, and for answering our questions and talking to us. For those of you watching, uh, I really, really recommend that you pick up the new book, uh, The New Abnormal, where you know you, uh, Professor Sheffi here has interviewed many people. You've had uh, a lot of coverage on this. So we wanna, I want to thank you very much, uh, Professor. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Maria. We should do it more often. We should. <laughs> Speak soon. Bye.